Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. And in October of 2016, my doctor, Nick Fleming, the University of California at San Francisco, said he was worried about my blood pressure being high. At that time, I laughed and said, don't you think there's something to do with this election? Thinking it'd all be over and things would calm down once Hillary defeated Trump. Four years and over 1,000 days and 1,000 blood pressure pills later, I think Dr. Fleming is very happy that for me and tens of millions of people across this country and hundreds of millions around the world, we can finally just breathe for a minute. And a lot of people have been making this comment about being able to breathe, and I I can't help but think of George Floyd and Eric Garner, who when they were being choked to death by police officers, each cried out, I can't breathe. For four long, long, long years, Donald Trump's knee has been on our neck, and it has been hard to breathe. But across this entire country, 76 million people from coast to coast rose up, cast off this oppressive leadership. As the New York Times editorial board wrote, having peered into the abyss of autocratic nationalism, the American people have chosen to step back from the brink. And then for me, looking at these election results and reflecting on where and how things played out, I kept hearing these historical echoes of the words of Martin Luther King from his I Have a Dream speech, which he ended with a long refrain about letting freedom ring. And as I was watching the election results roll in in states across the country, I could hear the echoes of Dr. King's famous speech where he repeated this refrain about letting freedom ring. And he said, let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. And what resonated for me as the election results came in was that Biden did, in fact, win all of those states which repudiated the white nationalism and near fascism that we were facing. But even more poignant and really politically, strategically significant is what Martin went on to say after listing those states. And he says, but not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. And the fact that Biden is leading in and almost certainly going to win Georgia and that Georgia could deliver control of the U.S. Senate to the Democrats in January is just incredibly historically powerful and poignant to me. So we can all breathe a little easier for a moment. Obviously, there's a lot of work still to be done, but we wanted to take a moment to reflect on what happened, what it says about where we're at as a country, and discuss where we go from here. And for that, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, and two special guests. Hi, Charlene. How are you done celebrating? How are you doing? And you want to introduce our guest. Uh, Steve, I'm not quite done celebrating, although I'm, I'm just recuperating from celebrating over the past weekend, but I'm hoping maybe people are still celebrating this weekend. And I know you said there's seriously a lot of work ahead of us, and but I really am just trying to be in the moment, trying to take advantage of this moment to celebrate a little longer. And I hope others do too, because, uh, you know, we're just, we deserve it. We are just deserve to keep taking it in and just enjoying a little longer this long awaited, deeply hoped for moment to appreciate and let sink in the very fact that this particular long nightmare of Trump as American president is finally coming to an end. And um, I'm just so glad that our conversation today is going to be about us entering this new chapter of our country's history with 
Joe Biden as president, Democrats winning back the White House. And of course, I'm very excited about Kamala Harris, a multiracial African-American, Asian-American woman from Berkeley and Oakland. And from Hastings College of the Law, which turns out great lawyers. Yes, for sure. Shout out um, all the levels of just pride and the historic moment on on so many you know levels and it's you know the fact that she's going to be our vp and she's a woman that my daughter is looking to and saying you know, multiracial women and girls can help run the world and that i'm just so glad that today that's our framing for our episode rather than oh no we have four more years of trump what are we going to no. do <laughs> And so even up until last Thursday, I don't even think I really allowed myself to imagine what we would be talking about today. But I know for myself and a lot of people, I do feel a lot lighter. It's Mm -hmm. like feels physical, something lifted off my entire body. So with that, I'm very excited to be in conversation today with our two guests. First is our old friend, D.C. area resident data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, who based on seeing her social media posts, also got her party on and was celebrating the results over the past weekend in front of, I believe, the U.S. Capitol. Hey, Julie. Hi there. Yes, I was definitely out there having some socially distant champagne with my son and several of our friends uh, who are other D.C. transplants. So we just all had to go and celebrate the, the amazing moment together. That's awesome. Yeah, I think like I think champagne sales have reached like an all time high. I I not had that much champagne in a while and I'm not even a drinker. Like that's why I'm still a little tired today. But it's like champagne. Yeah, was the name of the game. Uh, We're also very fortunate today to be joined by John Laredo. John is a former member of Arizona's State House of Representatives, where he served for eight years, including as House Democratic leader. And before he went on to champion local and national progressive candidates. His work over the past decade has laid the groundwork for the historic win we saw in Arizona last week. He is a key strategist for all the good things happening in Arizona and is the founder of Arizona Wins, a coalition of progressive advocacy organizations and labor unions working together to improve public policy for working families in Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. Julie and John, as Steve was saying, we are all finally having this chance to just breathe, chill, take a moment, reflect, celebrate. And I just wanted to pause and ask how each of you marked this moment. Give us a sense of what your experience was like when you heard that Biden was declared the winner. And what was that like for you? (laughs) Yeah, wow. So, I mean, you know, there was all that waiting. And so when the moment actually came... I just, you know, I jumped up, ran to my son's room, hugged him, and we we're like, it, it's done. It happened. We we did it. <laughs> and then I wanted to run out in the street and start hugging my neighbors, and I realized I couldn't do that. Right. So, <laughs> so I had to sort of gather myself. <laughs> but yeah, then I just started tweeting and, and Facebooking everyone and, and um, organizing the party on the mall. <laughs> nice. Nice. How about you, John? You know, I think it was it was it was mixed, right? I I think because so much of what we do is advocacy and, and as I've always tried to keep people focused on is that the election uh, is the means. Uh, the policy that comes after the election, that's the end. It's about the policy that helps people and improves their lives. And so a lot of what we do is legislative advocacy. And so 
right away, you know, we're, we're looking at what are, what's the agenda? What are we looking at? Are we looking at a, a special session? You know, we've got two months to prepare. So we really kind of transition right into the, the, the policy portion of, of our program. Uh, but then along, you know, along the way, looking at the numbers as they came in, of course, counting a little bit slow. I think we still have 23,000 more votes to count with some really tight local races. But as things started to pan out and seeing that Mark Kelly was going to win U.S. Senate, uh, that Joe Biden was very likely to win the presidency, I think that's when it really kind of hit me that, holy cow, like we've been we've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, and miraculously, on year 10 of a 10-year plan, we actually flipped the state blue, which just kind of amazed me. Uh, so given awesome. all of the challenges here, a uh, pretty amazing feeling to see that really kind of uh, come to fruition in the end. So great. We want to talk a lot more about that later. So hold that thought. And I just want to check in with Steve on capturing that moment, the moment you found out it was official, official, Steve. Yeah, well, again, you know, like Julie was saying, the, the waiting had gone on. So that was kind of driving me crazy, right? That been that whole, you know, we talked some of it on the, on the post-election episode. And then it was clear by Friday that Biden was going to win. And even um, was it Decision Desk ACQ had called the election for him. And I put on Facebook, Biden's the uh, president-elect. Announcement coming this morning because I thought everybody would be, you know, all the media would be <laughs> chiming in. Then I edited it and said, announcement coming soon. <laughs> and then in the nighttime, I said, <laughs> announcement coming tomorrow, I think. Oh. So there yep. was that kind of yeah, a little bit of frustration going on. But I think what was touching for me was kind of, to connecting with parts of my family. And so my dad called me and, you know, was very excited and was, you know, he lives in Houston now. And I, I had forgotten that. So when our friend uh, Ben Jealous was head of the NAACP, their national convention was in Houston. And he got tickets for my dad to go in 2011. And the speaker at that convention was Joe Biden. My dad actually got to meet Biden there, and I oh. had forgotten all about nice. that. So we nice. were sharing that moment. And then the other end of the generational spectrum, my niece and nephew, uh, Diera and Christian Phillips, were um, 17, 18, freshmen and sophomores in college. They both have birthdays. Uh, Diera's birthday was on the Thursday after the election, and Christian's was on the Saturday, the day that it was it was called. So I, I, I you know, texted and Facebook both of them. I was like, happy birthday. We got you a new president. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'll just add my little thoughts real quickly. I just was, same thing, Steve, just I think, again, still tired from that roller coaster ride last week of like the cliffhanger every night. Like how late can you stay up trying to refresh your screens waiting to mm -hmm. uh, look yeah, at the numbers like when you were results. texting me at one in the morning oh man that was i was waiting for georgia to flip and i don't care i stayed up till 2 30 i was i was like i'm not missing the historic moment <laughs> to find out that he you know biden's uh, votes went just past trump's in, in georgia and i was i was so happy and so the in terms of saturday morning my husband told me he wakes up earlier and he was like you know we, we it's official flipped pennsylvania so i was just jumping down shouting and screaming and running around the house and then i immediately pulled up on my phone you know that song they play at sports games a lot it goes like na 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 hey 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 goodbye <laughs> and it was just like super felt like so good it's super petty i was blasting it my daughter had never heard that song before and she was like this is an awesome song so that is like a, just a memorable memory for me in that moment and then we just proceeded my phone was blowing up friends were like what are we doing today so we went to 
a few very small backyard social gathering. I may have started drinking champagne at noon up until midnight on and off. I hadn't danced like that in so long. I danced with my friends. We went driving around and watch people dance in Oakland. And it was just a beautiful moment. And that's what I'm really trying to hold on to because I know there's a lot of work ahead, but all that energy, people were pent up from 2020 and the pandemic and the Trump stress. And you know what? It just felt so good to be among people celebrating community and all races, ages, and backgrounds. People very much, I could tell everyone wanted to hug each other, but we couldn't. But there was so much through the eyes. You know, people had masks on, but everyone was sort of conveying, shouting, screaming, and air high-fiving the the joy and the love of um, kicking a fascist out of the White House and being on, you know, being on the same side of justice and decency. And um, yeah, so we are so excited to get a chance to talk about like what happened and where to go from here. Steve, where do we go from here? First place we go is Georgia. The control of the United States Senate will be decided by the two runoff elections in Georgia happening on January 5th. So it's really going to be the center of the political universe uh, for the next, you know, almost two months. And we've got to do everything possible to help win those races. And that will determine whether it's Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer is running the Senate and all the things that flow from that in terms of the agenda, cabinet appointments. Uh, are we going to t- tackle reforming the courts, the Supreme Court? All of that is hangs in the balance. So the, our two candidates, Reverend Raphael Warnock, he's the Democratic candidate in one of the races, progressive African-American civil rights leader, He's the pastor of the church where Martin Luther King used to be the pastor. The other candidate in the other race is John Ossoff, who ran for Congress in 2017 in one of the first special elections after Trump took office. And he built up this national following. It was a very big national galvanizing effort to really try to win that seat as a symbolic effort to start to repudiate Trump and a really rallying cry of the resistance. So those are our two, our two standard bearers. And it's going to be a super competitive race. But we've got a very good shot at winning both of them because of the foundation that Stacey Abrams and others have built over the past several years. So, for you know, first as the you know leader of the Democrats in the Georgia State House, and then in her gubernatorial campaign, Stacey's built a network of activists and organizers and voters in every county in the state. And that's the machine that delivered that state for Biden. Biden spent very little on that race, he even said uh, on uh, his election announcement piece. So we're winning Georgia. That wasn't part of the plan, right? And so they totally benefited from that foundation and that infrastructure, but we have that infrastructure. And so if we continue to support it and fund it and back it, we can win those seats. And so Stacey and her organization, Fair Fight, as she created out of her gubernatorial campaign, that was a really unsung hero in fighting all of the voter suppression really all over the country. Uh, But again, it grew out of the Georgia effort, uh, out of her Georgia campaign. So they're going to play a key uh, coordinating role in terms of how to deploy human and financial resources in order to win those races. And so we've set up at Democracy in Color a, one sh- a one-stop shop link where you can give a single contribution that'll it'll be split between Ossif and Warnock's campaigns and Fair Fight. And so 100% of the resources will go to those three entities. And then if you want to volunteer time and energy as well, Uh, You can also sign up with America Votes Georgia or the Georgia Democratic Party. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. Steve, yeah, I'm really glad we put together some easy ways for people to get what they need to get more involved in help. Because pretty much immediately after the news came in on Saturday, I had friends 
texting me who listened mm-hmm. to our show, listened to you saying, okay, I want to um, donate. I want to do more. Georgia, they knew they're like, okay, I got it, Georgia. What, you know, what can we do? And so we're trying to make it easy for people to, to do that so they don't have to, you know, try to do the research on their own. Steve, though, I do have the multi-million dollar question, which I know is on a lot of people's minds. What do you think are the chances really of us winning these runoff races in Georgia in uh, January? They're, they're good. I mean, the fact that we won the state and actually um, Biden is leading in Georgia by a larger amount than Trump won Michigan in 2016. And again, this was not part of the plan. They didn't invest millions of dollars. They didn't put a lot of resources. I don't think Biden himself went there at all. I mean, they did send Obama, which was probably smarter for Georgia. Um, but um, it shows that how close it is and how competitive it is now. And so if you look at the trajectory, right? I mean, Obama lost in 2008. He lost Georgia by five points. He didn't even contest it. And then Stacey basically fought to a draw. Um, the official count, right, she lost by 50,000 votes, 1%. And then now we have Biden winning. So clearly that state's composition has changed to be a purple state turning towards blue. And we have the numbers, but it's going to be hard because runoffs are always hard in terms of getting mobilization, getting people out, and particularly over the holidays as well. And it's going to be very labor intensive work to follow up with people and track them. So we really got to get the resources to the groups there so that they can hire the people to do the work to get our vote out. But I really believe, and I actually talked to Stacey Abrams yesterday, and she says that we can win these races. And so I think that we, if we all step up again and dig deep again, we can actually flip those races and take control of the Senate. Yeah, I was watching clips. Um, so one of the things I've been enjoying keeping myself buoyed is watching all the clips from around the country of people dancing in the streets. And let me just say the Atlanta ones, like people were just mm. so much energy and I, I wish I could transport myself. They're dancing the streets of Atlanta. But I think that they just got to keep that energy up. And you know, so I, I get it. And like we, our next step is to win those races in Georgia, January 5th. And so let's, let's step back now for a minute and then kind of broaden the view and look at what happened in this election and what kind of lessons we can learn from it because there's all sorts of kinds of the the good, the bad, and the for sure ugly in the results wasn't all good news. But with that, let's start with the good news. Julie, I'm wondering if you can help with that. What, in your opinion, are some of the good news takeaways from this election. So you mean besides the defeat of the white supremacists who want to be fascists sitting in the White House? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, okay besides sure. that, that, okay. Best, that's so, the best so, news. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, digging a little deeper into the numbers, um, I see we've got three really important positive trends that we should lift up. So first is just the sheer size of the turnout. I mean, more than 150 million people have voted. That's the latest numbers. And they're still counting. So Biden and Harris won 76 million of those votes, which, of course, is more than any presidential ticket in history has ever won. And turnout was 62% of all the eligible voters. And that's probably going to be the highest vote turnout in at least 100 years, right? Amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. So second, the election went very well overall from an election administration standpoint. There were very few glitches, which is especially notable given not just the pandemic, but the outright assault on the electoral process. 
And um, also, you know, we had sabotaging taking place from the post office uh, to threatening to intimidate people at the polls. So given all that, the election really went off very well. And that's especially important given all the attacks and the claims of voter fraud that we're seeing now post-election. And then third, it's not just that Biden won, but it's where he won. So specifically winning Arizona and Georgia, that's just huge. And it's still really close in both of those states as the final votes are getting tallied. But his margins in both of those states are larger than the margin of Trump's 2016 win in Michigan. So that, I think, is going to be something that we really need to lift up when when people try to minimize the meaning of, of this race. And, you know, just really, if you think about it, right, the South and the Southwest are the cornerstones of conservative political power in the country. But at the same time, they're also the places where most African-Americans and Latinos live. So Democrats starting to win in those states, in those regions, can really upend the long-term political balance of power in the country. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that point. I think we might talk about it a little bit more in a, in a bit, but it's, it's no accident that the South and Southwest are conservative pillars of power, right? I mean, those are the regions where black people were held in slavery. That's why there's so many black people in the South. And there's so many Mexican-Americans in the Southwest because the Southwest used to be part of Mexico, right? And what's the saying our people particularly in Texas say that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. <laughs> That's what my family says. <laughs> right. So Texas was taken from Mexico in a violent and bloody war because the United States wanted to expand slavery in this country. And so you have the, the level of a uh, repression is so much more intense because of the large numbers of people of color. And that's the underlying battle that's taking place and has been taking place for decades, if not centuries in this country. And that's what makes it so strategically significant that now Georgia and Arizona are flipping and turning politically. Yes, that's a really good reminder. Thanks for that. People often just take as a given that the South is conservative and that that's its image and that it's white. You know, I always think TV shows and movies that I grew up on, you know, it's just that's, you know, the image that a lot of us still have and that somehow progressives have no chance there. So it's just really good to get context and get grounded in that context to see the progress and to see that, you know, they are getting more progressive and that they are so brown. Steve, I know you posted on Facebook about how a lot of people's lives were going to get better because of a Biden win. Yeah, there was a very encouraging article in the Washington Post about the plans that Biden's team is putting in place for as soon as they take off for sort of a series of executive orders, steps they're going to take, et cetera. And so, you know, first, let's start with the dreamers, right? That they've been living under fear of deportation and attack for four years since Trump has come into power and that now they get to be able to breathe. And so that's not inconsequential at all. And I mean, your heart really goes out and really just very moved by the prospect that their lives are going to be um, removed from that fear of, uh, uh, you know, folks coming after them. And also in terms of the country, uh, the whole world, right, frankly, that, you know, Biden put out. So we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, going to rejoin the World Health Organization. So Trump was mad that the WHO was doing anti-COVID uh, measures, and so we decided to withdraw from it. I mean, is this the, I don't think they'll get me started on, the, on all of that. But in terms of the COVID piece, that's also encouraged. Biden's put together a very distinguished, reputable um, task force with all these top doctors and scientists and experts. So he's already stepped into the leadership void 
around what this country should be doing about COVID. It's going to be meeting with the governors around the country. And we've had this vacuum for seven months, and they've already begun to step into that. And you can already feel like the adults are in the room and that we're going to be moving in a much more positive direction. Oh, absolutely. I was telling some folks that after the win was announced, my daughter started making these signs just on her own because she, I had told her we were going to go outside and see what people were up to. So she goes, oh, I want to make some signs. And one of her signs, she wrote is science is real. And I just thought like, you know, the bar is so low for <laughs> <laughs> what needs to be reversed is just, you know, simply taking back facts and uh, science is real and that there's certain measures that we need to do to get COVID under control. With that, let's pivot. Let's take a clear-eyed look at the bad and the ugly. So Julie, what have you got on that, the yin and the yang side? This will be the yin, I guess. (laughs) Well, so remember when I said that Biden had gotten more votes than anyone who's ever run for office in the history of the country? So Trump has also gotten the second most votes of anyone who's ever run for office. And that increase in turnout that we were talking about, well, a lot of it comes from Trump supporters, right? So that's particularly sobering because it's clear that, you know, while he did lose a fair amount of support from those white college educated voters and people in the suburbs, he also made up some of that by bringing out even larger numbers of those true believers. I'll say that in a nice way, especially those white non-college educated voters, right? So in terms of looking in the mirror, it's not a particularly pretty picture and it's very sobering. After four years of Trump in office with all the racism, sexism, xenophobia, and incompetence in the face of a global pandemic, Not only did 71 million people vote to keep him in office, but the majority of whites, 57%, and even half of the college-educated whites voted for him. And white women, again, voted for Trump, this time actually by an even larger margin than in 2016. So 55% of white women voted for Trump versus the 43% of white women who chose Biden. And the other thing the exit polls show and something that's gotten far more attention than the political behavior of white voters is that Trump did make some inroads with Latino and African-American men. Now, Biden still got uh, 87% of the black vote overall and 66% of the Latino vote, which is the same percentage that Clinton got. But Trump's numbers improved by five points among black men and four points with Latino men. So while that's concerning, it's also important for us to note and keep in mind that it looks like those increases for Trump mainly came from people who voted third and fourth party last time. So um, Biden's numbers with black and Latino men overall are pretty close to what Hillary got in 2016, which was 80% of black men and 61% of Latino men. Yeah, thanks for that context. In the end, Biden's numbers with black and Latino men overall were pretty similar to Hillary because I, I have been reading a lot of different takes on this. And overall, the feeling I got was just my heart sank, you know, I mean, actually, like, just kind of get this really like, nervous feeling in my stomach of how concerning it is to see numbers of different uh, people of colors, especially among men going towards Trump. And it um, just felt disappointing, disconcerting, to be honest. So I'd like to discuss a bit what our takeaways are about what this says about the country. But first, I want to share a couple of things of what others have said about what this says about the United States. First, I want to play this clip from the John Oliver show, where he reflects on this question, and I think he frames it really well. The real takeaway of this election might be 
that there is no easy answer to the question of who we are. A perfect example is this. Kamala Harris is now going to be vice president. The first woman vice president, the first South Asian American vice president, the first black vice president, and the second black person we've sent to the White House in the last 12 years. That's incredible. Unfortunately, we did elect a white supremacist in between them. And the fact is that all of that together is kind of who we are. And secondly, I want to read a bit from an op-ed written by one of my favorite writers and thinkers, Roxanne Gay. Her piece is titled, I am shattered but ready to fight. That piece ran in the New York Times on November 5th. And here's a little bit of what she says in her piece. The United States is not at all united. We live in two countries. In one, people are willing to grapple with racism and bigotry. We acknowledge that women have a right to bodily autonomy, that every American has a right to vote and the right to health care and the right to a fair living wage. We understand that this is a country of abundance and that the only reason economic disparity exists is because of a continued government refusal to tax the wealthy proportionately. The other United States is committed to defending white supremacy and patriarchy at all costs. They are not concerned with the collective because they believe any success they achieve by virtue of their white privilege is achieved by virtue of merit. So that really, to me, captures a lot of what I've been feeling in this moment, and I think a lot of people too. Steve, um, and uh, you know, Julie, what are your main takeaways? Yeah, I think that, that Roxanne Gay captures it 100%, right? And I, I've been increasingly focusing on this metaphor, which is more than a metaphor, is our reality, is that the Civil War never ended, right? That, that we're still engaged in the continuation of this fight over what kind of country is this? Is this going to be a predominantly and whites only or whites first country, a country whose immigration law said that to be a U.S. citizen, you had to be a free white person. And that existed from 1790 until 1965 in terms of this country's laws. Or are we going to be a multiracial, multicultural nation? And that battle continues to rage. And what's concerning is that not everybody on the liberal and democratic and progressive side realizes we're in that battle. And so that's my other take. So we have to be very clear-eyed about the nature of the fight that we're fighting. You're seeing the, the refusal to concede and all the winking and nodding and trying to steal this election in the days after the election, from Mitch McConnell to the state legislature in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And so we have to be under no illusions about the fact that we are in a ferocious and pitched battle. And we are in a battle with people who are not acting in good faith and to not share the values of the same social contract that we have. And so we need to back leaders who are fighters and waited to pass policies that will build our power to defend and expand our democracy. Back leaders such as, you know, Tramwin of Virginia, Ense Ofad of New Georgia Project, Michelle Tremillo of Texas Organizing Project, Jessica Bird of the Electoral Justice Project, John and the folks that he works with in Arizona. These people are fighters and we're in a fight. And that's one of the biggest takeaways I have from this, from this election. Yeah, and I'll add that we need to take a long-term perspective to this fight. So winning Georgia was a culmination of a 10-year effort by Stacey Abrams and others building up organizations and increasing the vote there, right? It took a decade to flip Virginia, and Texas is uh, still in the middle of its 10-year plan, but it's making real progress. Yep, 10 years. I think I've been just hearing that from Steve, and I'm starting to let that sink in. And definitely realizing that we all need to just dig in for the long haul. And speaking of someone who knows something about developing and executing a 10-year plan, 
let's now turn to John and his work in Arizona. So this again, 10 years, 10 year plan, folks. So start, I keep saying, start taking your vitamins, start doing your push-ups. And the reason why we invited John Laredo with us today is to tell us more about Arizona's 10-year plan and what it took to flip that state. John, I did want to quote you real quickly something you wrote on Facebook. Sometimes you have to stand up and fight when all the odds are against you. This is a 10 of a 10-year plan to flip this state. It's been a very long and challenging road. Thank you to so many partners, both locally and nationally, who have been on this journey and in this fight with us. We couldn't have done it without you. The fight continues. And John, so what did you mean by that 10 of 10 year plan? And how did you come to start your 10 year journey? I'll, I'll just quickly interject that as I was going back through John's Facebook feed to find the exact quote, I also came across a quote saying, F Donald Trump, get out of Joe Biden's house. So there was yeah. also that. I know, put that on a t- I want to put that on a t-shirt. I'll put that on a t-shirt with your face on it, John. That was my more eloquent speech. Um, Sure. So, so you know, I, I think that for Arizona, like we, that this fight goes way beyond ten years, right? I mean, it goes back a long way. But ten years ago, in two thousand ten, uh, there were some some critical things that happened. One of which was SB ten seventy, which a very racist uh, senator named Russell Pierce, who was the president of the Senate at the time, pushed uh, SB ten seventy, which was basically the show me your papers law, which uh, allowed basically legalized racial profiling uh, for law enforcement in Arizona, he managed to get that bill through. Uh, it was challenged in court and we were able to, you know, hold most of it off. But but at that point, <clears throat> Russell Pierce had already been in office for 10 years before SB 1070. Uh, he came, my, my, I served a full eight-year term, eight years uh, in, the, in the state house. He came my second term. Uh, so I served with Russell for six years, and I was the Democratic leader in the House, and I made it my mission in life to kill anything this guy signed, uh, and I did. But when SB 1070 happened, there were a variety of other things that happened as well. Democrats had really lost a lot of power in the state legislature. We had gone down in number uh, to, I think, nine uh, at that around that time, nine Democrats in the state Senate. That was it. You know, we would joke around like you, you can't invite more than five Democrats to, to lunch because then you've got to do a public notice because the majority of the caucus was with you. Uh, it was bad. And we were losing things left and right. And it became really clear and obvious that what we were doing politically just wasn't working anymore. And one of the things that that was really clear is that there was a real lack of unified program in Arizona. Uh, Everyone just kind of did their own thing. Unions did their own things. The choice community did their own thing. The enviros did their own thing. Latinos did our own thing. Nobody was really coordinating the way that we should. There was no progressive infrastructure on the independent side at all. And so using some of the other states is a really good example uh, of what you should be doing. In particular, you know, the table of work that was done in Colorado uh, and other places, we decided that we needed to do something drastic and dramatic if we were going to change the massive losses, not only electorally, but then seeing those losses play out in terms of really horrifically bad policy like SB 1070 uh, was all we needed to get people together and say, all right, look, you know, there are a variety of different reasons why people don't like working together. Uh, There's personalities, there's politics involved. But I remember getting people together, calling everybody together that I I had worked with with as the minority leader in the state house. And I had a lot of credibility with a lot of different people. And I pulled everybody together and I said, okay, let's, let's bottom line it here. Who's ready to stop losing? 
who's ready to stop losing? And everybody raised their hand, and I said, okay, then we need, we need a new structure. We need to unify everything. We need to pull our money, pull our resources, pull our program, be strategic, be data-driven about what we are doing, where we are competing, quit wasting money, quit wasting time, and really focus in on winning. And that's going to take all of us working on the same plan in the same areas and unifying everything that we have. And it was rough at first, but everyone agreed that what we were doing was simply not working. And we were all getting our rear ends handed to us, not only politically with the elections, but around policy as well. And so that kind of began the really big journey to try to create a structure uh, that we could use. And what we did is we created a C4 table. That was 2011. The year before 2010, community-based organizations founded One Arizona, which was basically Latino community engagement groups to fight back against SB 1070. And uh, with One Arizona, together on the C3 side, we formed Arizona Wins on the C4 side. In terms of the C3 groups coming together, like who, who were some of the leaders that said, okay, let, we have to start working together? Who were some of the folks who pulled that together? Well, at that time, uh, the important thing to remember is that there were not a lot of Latino engagement groups that were actually formed at that point in time. But there were a couple of really key ones. Uh, Promise Arizona was doing a lot of work at that point. Uh, and if you look at a lot of the leaders of organizations that are that are in play right now, a lot of them came out of, of Promise. Mi Familia Vota was around uh, during that point of time. Uh, and they jumped into the fight along with uh, some of the labor unions at the time that had really strong Latino uh, organizing programs. And so that just kind of was the, the basis and the foundation. So basically you had community groups and labor and like political leaders, elected leaders, all trying to coordinate and work together right. around moving this forward. And so then what were some of the benchmarks of progress over the course of those years? Well, I think the early years, uh, the benchmark was, of progress was just getting everybody to agree to work together. Right. Uh, that was different, um, and it was and it was big. But I think the you know looking back, the beauty of it was is that there were no really clear objectives at the time. It was this we really kind of learned as we went along. What do we need to do to win? Uh, you know, there were a lot of theories, of course, but on the C three side, they really dug into you know there's not enough of us. There, we don't have enough voters. Uh, and the voters that we do have are not engaged, and they don't vote at, at a rate that is high enough to actually win. And so when Arizona dug into that, really saying, okay, we need to sign people up for Pebble at the very beginning uh, and do it in large numbers. And if we can do that, get people on vote by mail, then if you're on vote by mail, you get your ballot 26 days before the election. And the county recorders will update who turns your their ballot in. So it's really it's it's a really good opportunity to chase those votes, get people that they've got their ballot in their houses, knock on their doors, do phone calls, uh, try to get them to uh, to to fill their ballots out and get them to, to turn them in. Uh, and in the early days, we would actually help them. You know, we would collect those ballots and turn them in ourselves until they outlawed that. But that was really kind of the the early benchmark for one Arizona was was signing people up for the permanent early vote list, vote by mail. So I think the significance of that in terms of this. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit in our previous podcast, but that permanent early voting list, the expertise and efficiency they've developed with this voting is what makes it more immune to all of these charges of fraud that Trump is actually trying to move forward. So the combination of actually winning Arizona plus the really bipartisan and very professional and smooth operation that they have 
has been a pivotal part of blocking their attempt to steal this election. Sure. And if you look at overall vote by mail rates, I mean, we're pushing, you know, we're going to hit 80% here pretty quick wow. uh, of, of ballots that get, you know, voted every year. It's, it's really high, but it's also very safe. It is a safe and secure method of voting. Uh, and there have been very few incidents at all. Uh, negative incidents involving that. So it, it's been a great, it's been a great opportunity. And look, we, we've done experiments early on. Uh, and we found that if you were signed up for Pebble, whether you did it yourself or one of our organizations signed you up, uh, you were something like 18% more likely to, to, to vote in the election. Uh, and when once you did, you pretty automatically became a high propensity voter. Uh, once you got used to voting at home, and you did it once and you figured out how to do it. So that, for one, Arizona has really, the C3 side has become really a core uh, of the organizing that they do. Once, you know, and, and then they really transition into to large-scale voter registration. And so in 2016, they registered, uh, focusing on new American majority, in particular voters of color, uh, they registered 154,000 people in 2016. In 2018, that number jumped uh, to 191,000. And then, of course, this year, you know, I mean, COVID hit, so, you know, we had very high numbers, but we also did a significant number of voter registrations uh, on the front end, and then really strong GOTV on the back end to make sure that those people are engaged the entire time, that they're communicated with, and that those, you know, chasing those ballots in as well. And so that once those programs really got up and running, you saw the number of Latino voters in particular, voters of color, Native Americans, African Americans, those numbers really started to tick up at a significant rate because prior to one Arizona, nobody had really paid a whole lot of attention and effort and money to get people to vote. Uh, on, on, you know, people of color to vote. One Arizona has been a game changer in increasing the number of people of color who are actually voting, who are registered and voting. So they have done an outstanding job at really boosting our numbers because the bottom line for us is that we were fighting the whole theory that all you have to do is persuade your way to a victory. And people overestimated the, the number of people in the universe that were actually persuadable. It's just much smaller than people think. And so we still do persuasion. But the reality is that the key to victory is registering our people, our voters, our new American majority voters to vote, getting them out to vote, educating them on the C4 side about who they should be voting for based on the issues, uh, and, and getting them to the polls. And so dramatically increasing the number of our voters turning out to vote is what has led to these victories. Uh, persuasion, of course, you still have to do persuasion, even with our own base. You have to educate people where, where these candidates are. But building our base and getting them out is really, that has been the focus of this 10-year plan. And what you are seeing now is the fruit of our labor. After 10 years, we have dramatically changed uh, the makeup of the Arizona electorate, and it is being reflected in the fact that after 10 years, Arizona turned blue, you know, at the very top. We've got Joe Biden elected. We we, we got Mark Kelly uh, elected to the U.S. Senate yeah. in a variety of down-ballot races as well. So that's right. in a nutshell, that's, that's how right. we did it. It's been a right. very long and difficult road. And I want to take this opportunity too, Steve, to say that, you know, we've been working together for, for many years, and you know these circles as well as, as anyone. It's, I spent many, many years talking people's ears off, begging them to get involved in Arizona. And for many years, uh, doing so unsuccessfully until I think I just wore them down and they gave us resources just to shut me up. But, 
you uh, were in uh, very early, uh, and you have supported uh, not only me personally but uh, and encouraged me, but have supported Arizona, uh, you and Susan and Julie and everyone involved on your end. And we really appreciate the support that you've given us over the years because you have given us some some validity that we didn't have before. You, you have validated our programs and really helped us uh, move forward. So thank you very much. Well, it's uh, Will, Willie Brown is the speaker of California, right? So he had said when they tried to dethrone him at one point and they failed and he, in his victory speech, he says, the first law of politics is you have to learn to count, right? So Julie and I can count, Susan and I can, <laughs> I can count, and we can see what the, what the composition of Arizona looks like and where it's trending. We can see what the composition of Georgia and Texas look like. And so we're glad that the rest of the world is starting to come around to that. Um, so we're almost up against time, but do you just want to say a couple, uh, couple words, John, about where you guys go from here in terms of what's on the horizon in Arizona? Sure. I think uh, one thing that is uh, really pretty clear is that we've been able to to build these tables out significantly. Uh, one, Arizona has dramatically expanded not only its membership, but its focus, uh, strong Native American focuses now. And on the C4 side, it's grown way beyond organized labor. It, you know, you've got Planned Parenthood, Arizona List. You've got uh, League of Conservation Voters and the Sierra Club on the Enviro side. You've got a variety of new organizations that have dropped in uh, to do great work over the last two cycles. And then you've got all of our community-based organizations that have done amazingly great work from Lucha, Our Voice, Our Vote, Mi Familia Vota, Chispa, Unite Here, Case. Uh, they've done excellent organizing. And so this thing is really expanding uh, dramatically and quickly. And so I think we really are at the point now where the tables have transformed from just running the program themselves to really being organizers of all the different organizations that are running program. And one very smart thing that we've done is make sure that, you know, the tables act as a resource to make sure that the organizations have what they need to grow. And so I think we're looking at majority, you know, we need to take the majority in the state legislatures. We are winning elections at the local level from the ground up, turning the biggest cities in Arizona blue, ballot measures and education, uh, ballot measure one, uh, recreational marijuana. We're, we're having some great victories in Arizona. And I think that we have really built out the electoral system. Uh, but again, more importantly, is expanding the reach of the infrastructure to make sure that we are as good at creating good policy as we are at getting people elected. Getting people elected is the means, holding them accountable and creating good policy that improves the lives of the people that we are working hardest for that is what counts, and I think that is the next step for this infrastructure. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize that point as well, because that's what we see in Virginia, where they've been able to translate their demographic change into political power. They have Democrats control of all of the different levers of government there and are able to now move policies, raising the minimum wage and extending health care to people and improving people's lives. And that's the model that Arizona's close behind in that. Georgia's going to be close behind. Texas as well. And that's the work as we think about 10 years and where we're going. And then the last thing I want to lift up, because John had mentioned this, but I want to shine a little quick spotlight on this, is that is the work around the, uh, the vote of Native Americans. Arizona has a large uh, percentage of Native American voters. And right. that where the Native American population is a meaningful percentage. And then the race is going to be very close in terms of Biden. So you could really say that as Native Americans who are critical to flipping um, Arizona. I think that that gets left out of national politics very frequently. So I want to lift that piece up. Okay, so that is 
all the time we have today. Um, thank you, John, so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thankfully, we have averted fascism for the time being, but there's still much to be done. As we mentioned, if you'd like to support the Georgia runoff races, you can find the link to our donation page and to the America Votes Georgia and Georgia Democratic Party volunteer pages in the show notes. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, our new staff writer at Democracy in Color, and April Elkier recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. I typically close out these podcasts by saying, keep the faith, but we have kept the faith and that faith has been rewarded. And so we leave you with some of the sounds of celebration after the election was finally called on Saturday. Oh,